Good morning. I'm going to start my talk the way I'm going to end it. Alleluia. Amen. Amen means so be it. So I'm going to share uh, some of my story. And um, one of my favorite books, Testament of Devotion by Thomas Kelly, I'm also going to share that. I've, there's several copies down here that anyone who wants it can take after the talk. And in a beautiful moment of divine synchronicity, Mike Hegeman's read from Testament of Devotion, Thomas Kelly, this morning in morning meditation. And when I told him that, he said, I couldn't find the book that I was going to read from, so I grabbed this one off the stack and read my favorite parts. And uh, it wouldn't have mattered either way, but he didn't actually read the passage that I'm going to read, so then you'll get even more. I've written this talk as much for me as for you to remind me where I come from. But first I'm going to tell you a story about my friend Otho Chase. Otho owns a little corner store on Chase's Island off the coast of Maine at the bottom of the bridge. This is one of those little islands that has a, a road that goes around the coast and when a car full of people from away drove by and waved. Otho watched. Fifteen minutes later, they drove by again. They circled a third time and waved weakly, but you could see their heart wasn't in it. <laughs> On the fourth pass, Otho walked out to meet them. The driver rolled down the window and admitted they were lost, and as hard as they tried, they just ended up where they started. Otho meditated on this as though it were a fresh revelation. After a thoughtful pause, he spoke. This is an island with a loop road that follows the shore and comes back around, he said. So all I have to do, chummy, is cross the bridge you came over on and head north. But we didn't cross no bridge, huffed the driver. Well, said Otho, you have a different problem then. You're not here yet. <laughs> Winnie was the place that I discovered that superimposed over our journey is our spiritual journey. That the heavenly realm is more than our future reality, it is also our present reality if we embrace it. If we grab Jesus tightly by the hand and don't let go, we can see this other world and live in it concurrently. Lift ourselves not out of, but into all that our earthly life can contain and transform all of it. The good, the bad, the ugly, into something more, something more real than what we thought was real. A revelation of not only who we are, but who we were intended to be from the, when God formed us and brought us into being. When I forget to hang on to those heavenly things that seem so real, they begin to fade. 
to slip away and they don't seem so real anymore because they're part of that otherness, a different realm that is only real in our connectedness with our Creator. Martin Luther said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. We are all slow to learn, I think, that in our walk with the living God, our Creator is often more interested in transforming our circumstances than changing them. I would often prefer that God would just change my circumstances to something of more to my liking. It's all about the goal, but the maker of all things is more interested in transforming our understanding of our circumstances so that we can grow, be transformed, conform to the image of Christ, who we are intended to be, and where our greatest freedom lies. I grew up in the Lutheran Church, first in Falmouth, Maine, where my parents met Joe and Natalie Hackinson, and later in South Paris, a small gathering of painfully shy Finnish congregants, loving but in the most bashful of ways. This shaped my understanding of who God was. I was pretty clear on who God the Father was, but since the gathered faithful always seemed to blush a bit at the name of Jesus, I didn't really feel like I had a good handle on who he was, and the Holy Spirit wasn't even on the menu. This is sort of ironic since the name of the church in South Paris was Trinity Lutheran. And so, in the end, it was left to CFO and Winnie to make the introductions. And I'll be saying CFO because when these things happened, it was CFO. I love JFO, but it wasn't JFO then, so. Anyway, an invitation came from Joe and Natalie Hackinson to attend Winnie. It wasn't until decades later that I discovered that Joe had paid for all of us to come. As Jim would say, what a bit of luck. There had been a few times when I had experienced the love of God in a mystical way, like the night I stepped out on the loading dock at the restaurant I was working at as a busboy, and briefly but profoundly felt an overwhelming sense of God's love and presence. Camp was different. It was a sustained acceptance and sense of God's abiding presence. That first year I was 12, the same age as Mateo, and I was sensitive, a bit beat up, picked on, slow to develop. I'd been one of the tallest in my class, but as I reached middle school years, my peers caught up and many surpassed me. I was a bit late in catching the puberty train, and uh, in middle school, I was still left standing on the platform waiting for the hormone express to arrive. This also left me with a soft complexion and I presented to some who first met me as decidedly androgynous. This was compounded by my insistence on shoulder-length hair because long hair was in. It was a regrettable bowl cunt in the front. <laughs> in short, I was a bit of an angst-filled adolescent mess and on the needy side of things. 
I started to wonder if I was gay. Not because I was attracted to boys, but because I wasn't yet attracted to girls. Other peers decided to draw the same conclusion based on my soft features and ambiguous appearance and dispatched their opinion with the delicacy and sensitivity that middle school boys are known for. <laughs> so I showed up at camp and one of my first experiences was creatives in the shed attached to the barn. Faith McKenzie was doing clay. She welcomed me in and explained the process. Grab some clay and make something, however the spirit led me. As Faith was circulating through the tables, having just met me, she was also working through the question of gender. This was our first year at Winnie, and when we were at registration, they made us up new name tags. In my case, they had recycled a name tag from someone named Adele and flipped it over and wrote on my name on the other side. Sometime before going to creatives, I had thought it would be funny to flip my name tag again. So if Faith had been thinking, boy, the Adele name tag pushed her in the other direction. So when she circled back to see how I was faring, she addressed me as Adele, which surprised me, although Lord knows why. <laughs> when I realized the source of the confusion, I flipped the name tag back and explained. This transaction exposed a raw nerve would have ordinarily caused me to feel shame or embarrassment to withdraw. But there was such love and acceptance in the sweet and simple way Faith explained her own dilemma and looked at me, accepted me, embraced me, made me feel welcome. And in that moment, something grew in me and I knew that beyond a loving person in Faith McKenzie, there was a loving God that was bigger than my hurt and my shame and that cared for me and accepted me at the most elemental level. I was shown the same thing decades later in a church in Toronto, Canada, but we're not there yet. So as I mentioned, when he was where I met Jesus for real, Speakers often came to the high school group, and Tommy Lewis joined our big circle of chairs and shared. He talked about experiencing God. He was from the South, and this is how he explained it. You could be the world's leading authority on chickens. You could know everything about them, their physiology, what they ate, their habits, how they laid eggs, or why they crowed. You could know everything there was to know about chickens, and yet you could starve with that knowledge. Feed a starving person a chicken, and they would be nourished and revived, even if they didn't know the first thing about chickens. As he spoke, he looked around our circle. And when his eyes met mine, something happened that I can't explain. As he looked at me, his eyes became the eyes of Christ. I felt an overwhelming sense of love. It was probably the briefest of moments, but it seemed like much longer. And in that completely unexpected moment, I both met Jesus and touched the eternal. 
Glenn Clark said, we take as our source and center the leadership of Jesus Christ as the highest expression and most perfect manifestation of our conception of the character of God. We give him our complete allegiance and loyalty. We are satisfied to belong to him and to him alone. In him we have our power, our peace, our plenty. In him we live, move, and have our being. But for me, Winnie's Christology has been best communicated through the music. The Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All we have to do is follow. Um, this is the audience participation portion of the talk. Uh, you can be the echo on the course. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. He is the lily of the valley. He is the bright and morning star. He is the fairest of ten so wonderful I tricked you into that because it's so wonderful to be up here and hear that singing <laughs> or the song that we started with wherever I go you're holding my hand wherever I sit wherever I stand both king of the universe and son of man Lord Jesus you're with me you're holding my hand talk about Jesus he's my rock and I know he walks beside me, and I know he lives within me. He's my rock. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Kings and kingdoms will all fall away, but there's something about that name. So I met Jesus, and that seed that had been planted by faith led to a deeper faith, and I began to touch the eternal more often. You can't get back to the mainland and continue your journey until you know that you've crossed a bridge. And I had found that bridge. CFO, JFO calls it kingdom living. So I'm going to share a few of those moments when I touch the eternal. I already mentioned standing on the loading dock of the restaurant, uh, restaurant where I worked in high school. Twice I've encountered angels, at least I think I have. You can be the judge. Rebecca and I had just closed on our first house. We were rounding the rotary and headed down Route 4 towards North Berwick. I caught something out of the corner of my eye and glanced in the rearview mirror. 
There was an explosion of white. It was July, but it looked like a blizzard in midwinter. I don't know how many of you have closed on a house in the last decade or two, but they hand you a stack of papers. They're about this thick. And I left them on the roof of the car. <laughs> I pulled over. Route 4 is a pretty busy road and there were more than a few cars whizzing by. There was a light breeze and the papers were strewn everywhere on the road and gathering in the tall grass on both sides of the highway. We were madly trying to grab up the papers when a station wagon pulled up a few car lengths behind our parked car and two older adults and what I took to be several of their adult children got out and they all started to help collect the papers and would hand them off to one of us and silently go back to collecting more. With their help, it went quickly and we were just gathering together the collected papers and glanced to both sides of the highway for any strays and there were none. We had them all. We both turned to thank the family for their help and they weren't there. Both they and their station wagon had vanished. They really hadn't, there really hadn't been time for them to pull out and pass by and there was still a fair amount of traffic. They had been benign and friendly, but never spoke a word. I say that they were angels because aside from how it felt, the unexpected appearance of helpful strangers and their sudden disappearance is consistent with many other accounts I have since read about angels intervening. A few decades earlier, I was driving in winter in Needham, Massachusetts. I had an old Dodge Cold at the time, it wasn't much of a car and it was pretty flimsy in construction. It was one of those times when the roads were more slush than snow. It was a few inches deep and best described as greasy. It was evening commute time and I was driving cautiously as traffic moved on these windy, narrow, up and down back roads. A bit tricky even on dry pavement. As I started around a slow uh, corner, the road was banked the wrong way toward the other lane with on -car oncoming cars headed toward me. I was drifting helplessly and the car didn't respond at all no matter how I turned the steering wheel or tried to massage it back into my lane. At this point, I could see the panicked look on the face of the driver in the lead car with several more behind it as we realized we were moments away from a head-on collision. There were several cars behind each of us that would add to the carnage once we crashed. With just a few car lengths to go and me more than halfway into their lane, the front of my car was suddenly yanked into the center of my lane. I imagine it as a mighty angel that forcibly pulled the car back into its lane. The road was still banked the wrong way, and the surface was still covered in a uniform layer of greasy slush. There was absolutely, absolutely no reasonable explanation for why the wheels that had been sliding helplessly a few milliseconds earlier would have suddenly found purchase. 
I was still shaking as I drove and adjusting from thinking it was my last few moments on earth to my normal commute home. It makes me wonder what I was spared for. Harrison, Ellis, Emery, Mateo, and Isabella might never have been born. And the world would have been a different place for those left behind. If by some chance I had survived the crash, I would certainly have sustained life-altering injuries. So we're coming back to camp now. At Winnie, communion used to be a part of our Thursday evening tradition. Many of them in the chapel where we met the first night. It was a holy evening. After the talk, we would proceed in silence as we left. Later, we would return for communion. I really miss those evenings. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that half the supernatural things I've seen happen at camp happened at communion. When we broke bread together, God always showed up, sometimes in powerful ways. The high school, high school, group, went as, the high school went as a group, and more often than not, would end up deeply touched, tears all around, the spirit stirring. I saw the face of a teenage car thief from the streets of Worcester change from hardened and withdrawn to childlike and vulnerable. I had a friend from camp named Ruth that had asked for prayer. We met weekly outside of camp for the better part of a year, and each time we prayed and talked, she would be overcome by childhood trauma. Every session would involve panic, tears, and sobbing. At times it seemed like there was no progress and we were repeating the same pattern over and over and over. When in reality, it was an upward spiral that would revisit an element of the same trauma, but in God's presence and healing light and was moving ever upward. I'll always remember the day meeting on the front porch when we reached that same spot and there were no tears. Only a great sense of peace in the abiding presence of Jesus. The upward spiral had reached the top of the well and broken into the light. Not long after that, I had a beautiful experience with Ruth. We were here at Winnie at Thursday communion service. Ruth became so overcome by the presence of the Holy Spirit that she was unable to walk or even get up from her seat. After the service was over, I stayed with her, and she was eventually able to get up, but was still so wobbly that I had to practically carry her back to her cabin and pour her into her bunk, a bit like the disciples at Pentecost accused of drinking. When I saw her the next morning, she told me that she had stayed awake all night, still bathed in the overwhelming love of Jesus. Years later, in times of great stress or sorrow, she would wonder if that night had truly happened. Ruth had been a regular smoker all of her adult life, but after that evening spent bathed in God's glory, she never again smoked or had any desire to. She would cling to that truth, and it's proof that she hadn't imagined that th those things had happened. They really had. In a testament of devotion, Thomas Kelly said this, 
the possibility of this experience of divine presence as a repeatedly realized and present fact and its transforming and transfiguring effect upon all life. This is the central message. Once discover this glorious secret, this new dimension of life, and we no longer live merely in time, but we live also in the eternal. The world of time is no longer the sole reality of which we are aware. A second reality hovers, quickens, quivers, stirs, energizes us, breaks in upon us, and in love embraces us, together with all things within himself. We live our lives at two levels simultaneously, the level of time and the level of timelessness. They form one sequence with a fluctuating border between them. Sometimes the glorious eternal is in the ascendancy, but still we are aware of our daily temporal routine. Sometimes the clouds settle low and we are chiefly in the world of time, yet we are haunted by a small sense, smaller sense of presence in the margin of our conscience. Consciousness. I want to talk about divine intervention. Those Jesus take the wheel moments in my life that Barbara mentioned when God intervened. I already told you about the car in Needham on the greasy roads. The way that I ended up in college was amazingly providential and improbable, but it would take too long to tell that story. So, But it did change the course of my life. I had another encounter that is uh, harder to quantify. My first job out of college was at Standard Oil Research and Development in Cleveland, Ohio, the home of Jan Marshall. Well, I wasn't at her home, but that's where she's from. Yeah. It was a quirky place full of scientists and mathematicians. Nearly all had advanced degrees, mostly doctorates, with the exception of a few interns like myself. I'd wanted to take Good Friday and had asked for it off and had already made plans to drive back to New England. My boss, Chuck, had sort of a cruel streak and told me at the last minute that I couldn't have it off without offering any reason why. I wasn't sure how serious he was or if he was just toying with me, but on that Thursday I decided that I was going to leave and would be back on Monday. It was a gated parking lot, and I was halfway to the exit when something happened that is hard to explain. It was like in my spirit there was an invisible wall that kept me from leaving. I knew it was God, but I was still struggling with my long weekend plans being ruined. It wasn't a visible wall, and I probably could have driven out if I decided to, but it felt very real and a warning I needed to follow. Finally, I turned the car around, went back into the building, and looked, into the uh, and looked for Chuck. But I couldn't find him. He was already gone. But I did find Chuck's boss, Arnie, who was also my big boss. Arnie wasn't really any nicer than Chuck. Always gave the impression that you were wasting his time and he had better things to do. So it made the moment all the more surreal when I explained the circumstances and Arnie all but said, go, my son, with my blessing. 
I still don't know what would have happened if I had decided to do it my way, but it felt like it would have had significant consequences in the moment or later on. So I mentioned at the beginning that it was left to CFO to round out the Trinity, and I had already met Jesus, so the Holy Spirit was next. I was at Connecticut CFO. Evelyn Spencer, known as Rev Ev, was the speaker that year. And after the afterglow, we had a second afterglow in her room. Rev Ev, Holly Shrek, Sister Ronnie, and maybe one other were gathered there when I arrived. After a bit, Rev Ev asked somewhat casually if I would want to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's a great story about Rev Ev that I don't have time to tell, but I'll give you the summary. And that is that she was hosting a Women's Aglow charismatic meeting at her house in California. And apparently things were really hopping. At one point, the fire department showed up because the neighbors thought they saw flames in the windows. <laughs> so... I said yes, and they laid hands on hands, and I received the baptism in the Spirit, spoke in tongues even, which turned out to have a very practical side, which I'll tell you about in a moment. I believe that the infilling of the Holy Spirit can happen in many different ways, look and feel very different for different people. I say it ended up having a practical side. Pat... Patrick Halloran and I, a friend from work, became close. Pat was one of those people whose lives were filled with hardship and undeserved sorrow. Patrick came from a large family. His father had abandoned their family early on, and his mother cared for them on her own, as best she could on your resources. While all the children were still school-aged, she was killed by a drunk driver. Pat tried to keep the family together, but they were split up by the state and sent to various relatives. So several of his sisters suffered sexual abuse from their placement. When I knew Pat, his siblings were all adults, but he still felt a responsibility for them all and stayed in touch with them and tried to shepherd them through life as best he could. Pat was angry at the world, understandably, and struggled with depression. He had served in Vietnam. Pat was fired over a disagreement at work, but we stayed in touch. Several years later, I learned that Patrick had contracted AIDS, something he attributed to intravenous drug use in Vietnam. I went to see him at Perkins School for the Blind, where he worked in one of the student resident homes. If nothing else, Pat was a survivor and decided he could no longer afford the overhead of staying angry and surrendered it. In an odd sort of way, AIDS was a great power for good in his life. Patrick was raised Catholic, but abandoned it. But he still believed in a higher power and that God was a personal God. Not long after that, Patrick came to see me at work. I had an office at the time it had glass in it, but it had a door that you could close. And we talked. It was a good talk. 
and he was getting ready to leave, and I asked him if I could pray for him. He said, sure. We were praying together, and as it progressed, I asked him if it would be okay if I prayed in tongues. This was a little unusual, even for me. But he said, sure, again, I'm happy to take the help wherever I can get it, he said. As I was praying in tongues with my hands on Patrick's shoulders, it was like this bolt of lightning passed through me and into Patrick. I felt electricity like a jolt. And as I completed, uh, and, and I completed the prayer, and I asked Patrick if he had felt the electricity too, and he said yes, but I didn't need to ask. I could see the amazed look on his face. Neither of us knew exactly what it meant, but I believe it helped to prepare his path forward and gave him peace. I saw Patrick one last time after that, several years later. He was weak but at peace, ready for the next journey. I had another encounter at work as well. It's an incident in my life that I like to refer to as the fishbowl showdown. I was attending morning prayer every morning at the time and when I was on the subway headed into work, God spoke to me very directly with unwelcome news. The day before this guy, Dan, that I worked with, it lit into a woman he worked with pretty hard, scary even. Up until then, they had worked together regularly and seemed to get along pretty well. The unwelcome news was that I was to confront the issue with Dan. I was like, really? <laughs> Are you kidding, God? I didn't like it, but it was clear that it was on God's agenda. So I got to work early that day and uncharacteristically so did Dan. I got up my nerve and asked him if we could meet in the fishbowl. It was a conference room with a big plate glass window that everybody walked by if they were headed to the office kitchen and lunch area. I took odd solace in that thinking if he decided to murder me at least there would be witnesses. Dan was a Vietnam vet as well. It seemed to be my specialty. He was big, bigger than me, and I was afraid of how Dan would react. His temper was well known, and I wasn't going to be saying things that were gonna be easy for him to hear. So I asked him about the encounter with Nancy, and we talked. He talked about his anger and some of his pains and struggles. And I talked to him about how I had felt impelled to meet, about being on the subway, knowing we had to talk. It could have gone horribly wrong, but it didn't. God's presence in that fishbowl was tangible and real. How many of you have learned that God is the only one who can tell you something bad about yourself? and you feel good about it. After that day, Dan showed greater affection and respect toward me. Through God's grace, he knew that I had spoken in love, and he had the courage to accept that love.
Not long after that, I entered into a new chapter in my life when I started attending a series of renewal meetings and conferences, many of them at the Toronto Airport Church. This shirt is a relic of that time of my life, which is falling apart, but I refuse to get rid of it. I attended with other CFOs like David Purdy and Holly Schreck from Winnie and Jeannie Gilpin and Elise Palmer from Acadia. I've never before or since experienced the presence of God in such a powerful way. It was a large sanctuary, a converted warehouse, and to enter you went through an open set of double doors, much like these ones over here on the side of the room. At the conferences, there were times when we broke for lunch or time between parts of the sessions and worship. The weight of God's presence in that room was powerful, visceral, and wonderful. But it often made getting back through those doors still standing difficult as you entered into the weight of the Holy Spirit. It was common to see people trying to crawl back to their seats before worship began. I don't foresee that happening here. Trying to navigate to our seats under the, a full-on bear, full bear hug from the Holy Spirit. But if it ever did, I would welcome it. Because I need a God that's that big. Like the beavers said about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's not a tame lion. One of my favorite things to do there was to be a catcher. In the evening, the prayer team would pray for others. Most would end up resting in the spirit, and I would be there to make sure that they landed gently. People used to ask the head pastor, John Wimber, why people fell down when they were prayed for. And he said, because they can't stand up. Which I thought was a reasonable answer. <laughs> like I said, I want a God that's that big, bigger than me. I mentioned being a catcher, but I also sometimes received prayer, and I wanted to tell you about one particular experience I had. As I received prayer, I felt bathed in God's presence and love. I sort of entered into a timeless place where it was just pure love and an unbridled sense of peace. I had some vague awareness that I had ended up laying quietly on the floor, although I don't really remember how I got there. I could have gotten up but I chose to continue to soak in that beautiful place and remain in God's company. And that decision was rewarded with a vision. There was a figure arched over like a dancer, knees and face touching the ground with back arched and the vertebrae showing clearly through. And I knew that it was me. And in that vision, God reached down and that form was split 
It was split open and God reached in and drew out a tiny embryo and he held it in his hands and then he held it to himself. And it was me. And I heard the Spirit say something like this. I've loved you since the very beginning. Even before the time that you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived by me. And I loved you. And I love you. Have always loved you. And know you completely. Those were powerful words. Before that time, I would frequently fall prey to what I would call imposter syndrome. If I was able to accomplish something worthy or people would recognize me for something I had done or said, I would think, well, that wasn't the real me. Somehow I thought that if I accomplished something, it was a fluke. Not really me, but an imposter me. So therefore, I also I had a hard time accepting affirmation because I thought it was offered to the false me the imposter. But after that vision, I was released from that. I knew that there was just one me, and I was truly loved by God. There are so many other divine moments that have happened right here at camp that I either experienced or witnessed Too numerous to name. Like the time that Courtney Edelson staggered out into the rhythms field after a powerful blessing service and declared that she'd been hit by the truck of the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Or the unexpected wonder that David Hodges and I experienced as we watched the northern lights late at night at the beach with waves of light shooting towards the vortex of the sky over the lake. That was pretty great, wasn't it, David? The many prayer groups where the Spirit showed up and lives were changed, even in quiet but powerful ways. Many times here in prayer, someone speaks the exact words we need to hear, words that were beyond what they could know of on their own, words of knowledge, The Spirit whispering to us in ways that we know can only be for us. Or in a talk when something leaps out at us and grabs us and transforms us. Or when we lose ourselves in rhythms and in doing so find ourselves. Marsha Brown used to say, Come to prayer prep if you want what's fresh off heaven's griddle. How many of you want to experience what God has for you fresh off the griddle? There was this Presbyterian pastor who was making house rounds and he was visiting with a widow and they'd finished their tea and he said to her, Do you believe in the hereafter? 
She said, oh yes, she said, just yesterday I was in the kitchen asking myself, what am I here after? <laughs> so what are you here after? It's Friday morning. We still have a day in the kingdom. You know, expectancy is a powerful thing. Remember who you belong to and that there's a vast unseen world at our fingertips. This is our journey farthest out, to touch the eternal, to enter the fourth dimension, to be one with our creator. Tomorrow we return to the proving grounds, but for this day, we're still on the training grounds, learning to become athletes of the spirit. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, surprise us today. Turn us inside out. Help us to touch the eternal. Be one with you. Let us know in specific ways that only you can know that we are undeniably and lavishly loved by you beyond measure through your resurrection power. Hallelujah. Amen.